Welcome to the Center Square Radio Hour. I'm your host, Chris Krug, Chief Executive Officer of the Franklin News Foundation and publisher of the Center Square Newswire service. Established in 2019, the Center Square is a newswire that today provides coverage from all 50 states. Center Square publishes original taxpayer-centric news that focuses on the size, scope, and effectiveness of state and federal government. Center Square is a 501c3 independent, nonprofit, nonpartisan news organization. Our work is republished in nearly 1,000 outlets across the United States. You can subscribe to our newsletters by going to www.thecentersquare.com. On this week's episode of the Center Square Radio Hour, our journalists explore their top stories from those originating in Washington, D.C., where I am this week, to the underreported stories from the states that hold national relevance. We round out our coverage with economic insights from Dr. Orfe Devangi, Ph.D. economist, and also bring the latest in K-12 education news from our Franklin News Foundation's Chalkboard News team. To ensure that the Center Square continues to deliver the news like no other media outlet in America today, we ask that you go to franklinnews.org and make a tax-deductible charitable contribution to support the Center Square and the Center Square Radio Hour. Over the next hour, we're going to check in with our reporting team on a number of stories that made headlines this past week. In national news, former President Trump won the Iowa caucus. In more election news, a new poll shows voters are split on whether former President Trump should be allowed on ballots. And in Illinois, the migrant crisis is being felt well out into the suburbs of Chicago. We'll be right back with all that and more in the Center Square Radio Hour. Knowledge is power, and you deserve to know what happens in your state government. That's why the Center Square's reporting zeroes in on state authorities publishing stories that show where your money goes and who spends it. The Center Square gives power to the taxpayer by tracking politicians' use of the people's money and demanding transparency from state-run agencies. This is how the Center Square equips you, the American taxpayer, to hold your state government accountable. Sign up now for your state's Center Square newsletter at thecentersquare.com. Welcome back to the Center Square Radio Hour. I'm Chris Krug. Earlier this week, former President Donald Trump won the Republican Iowa caucuses by a historic margin. Dan McKayla, Vice President for News and Content of the Frank Luce Foundation and Executive Editor for the Center Square. He's here to tell us more. Joining me again today is the Center Square's Washington, D.C. Bureau Chief, Casey Harper. How are you, Casey? Doing good, Dan. How are you? I am doing well, thank you. The Iowa caucuses are behind us, and as expected, former President Donald Trump pretty much lapped the field, gaining more votes than uh, his entire competition, combined more than 50% of the votes there. On Tuesday of this upcoming week, New Hampshire primaries, where Trump is probably expected to win again, maybe not by as much as he did the Iowa caucuses. Casey, after Tuesday, are the primary season going to be over on the Republican side? (laughs) Well, it is very possible that it will be over practically, but I don't think that we're going to see those candidates drop out who have been pouring in tens of millions of dollars into Iowa, New Hampshire. I've um, already seen that Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who, you know, he did play second in Iowa, but did not, you know, in some ways it was a disappointing finish because he's still so far behind Trump despite spending so much money in Iowa. Um, and so much time and, and campaign resources. Uh, but he's he's eyeing South Carolina, which is a an early primary state where he thinks that he can make a big impact. And he'll need to do it there because in New Hampshire, 
he's polling pretty poorly at about less than seven percent. Five times real fast. I know. I can't. I don't think I can say it one more time. Um, you know, he he's poll- not polling well in New Hampshire. Nikki Haley has uh, more than three times as much support as him. She's in the mid twenty percent support, I believe, and he's around seven. And so he's going to get really dominated by Nikki Haley in New Hampshire if the polling holds true. But even then, um, Trump is still expected to uh, beat Nikki Haley. Uh, he's in, you know, 40 to 45% range in New Hampshire, which is definitely lower than Iowa and is notable. Nikki Haley is spending a lot of advertising money in New Hampshire, hoping to close that gap. But a lot of her supporters are antsy. They're saying, if you can't win New Hampshire, which is your best state, uh, are you really going to be able to beat Trump at all? So I think there's some people holding out hope. But And it's all interesting, Dan, before I hand it back to you, because these early states are big symbolic victories. But when it comes to the overall delegates, um, they're not that many. Iowa's only 40 delegates. You need a little more than 1,200 delegates, 1,215 delegates to win. So Iowa is a small percentage. But when you lose so handily in these early states, it is a big moral loss, a big moral victory for the winner. And the other reason it's important is because Super Tuesday is coming up. And there are a lot of delegates on the line in Super Tuesday, and those states all vote on the same day. And so whatever momentum is created or lost leading up to Super Tuesday heavily influences all those people who vote at the same time. And so by the time all those, you know, they, they're all going to vote with the same impression of who's going to be the winner based on the early states. And once you're past Super Tuesday, it can be really hard to build momentum or come back if you haven't won any state to that point. Super Tuesday is in March. Of course, before we look forward a little bit more, Casey, let's just recap Iowa one more time. What was interesting to me was um, Trump's victory speech after uh, it was clear that he was going to win more than 50 percent of the the vote, outpacing all of his challengers. Combined, his post-caucus speech was more conciliatory than you'd expect from President Trump. He's, you know, he's been criticizing all of his opponents in the race in normal Donald Trump fashion, calling uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, Ron DeSanctimonious, but he, he kind of praised them a little bit in his speech with the ultimate goal of saying, hey, we need to unite as a party so we can beat President Joe Biden, almost the guaranteed Democratic nominee in November. Uh, you don't hear Trump speak like that a lot, do you? You know what it reminded me of, Dan, was in 2016, when Trump had shocked the country and beaten Hillary Clinton, and he went up there and he gave his victor speech, right? And he he congratulated Hillary, who he had pounded on the campaign trail mercilessly on the debate stage, on social media. He had just been vicious to her. But when it when it came time for his acceptance speech, he was very conciliatory and he congratulated Hillary Clinton on her, you know, he, he didn't go after her. It was over. And so what this tells me is that in Trump's mind, this race is over. He's congratulating and giving out participation trophies to his opponents, and he's already turning his eyes towards President Joe Biden. Now, there's a lot more campaigning to be done, but I think that explains a lot of the tone is in Trump's mind, this cemented uh, that he is the inevitable candidate. The polling in, in New Hampshire, as we said, has him there at the national level. And we our Center Square Voters Voice poll found a lot of this that um, Trump is beating every candidate and he's even beating President Joe Biden on the national level and in many of the key battleground states. So I think in Trump's mind, he he's just congratulating, the giving people pat on the back and saying, that was a great try, maybe <laughs> next time because I've got it. I can certainly see that comparison, Casey. So let's talk a little bit more about New Hampshire. DeSantis, as, as you mentioned, he's polling in the single digits there. 
how can he be a viable candidate if that's what the New Hampshire results are? A distant second likely to, to Nikki Haley, who will likely still be a distant second to Donald Trump. I know they've raised millions and millions, tens of millions of dollars, and they've spent tens of millions of dollars. But how can you even campaign fundraise if you get single digits and you get, you get blown out in Iowa, you get single digits in New, New Hampshire? I don't know that donors would think you're a viable candidate at that point. Yeah, I mean, these are all the same questions that many, I think, of DeSantis's staffers are having, unfortunately, for them. Uh, Iowa was the chance to show that, you know, polls are just polls and voters um, think for themselves. Iowa was DeSantis's chance to outperform um, the expectations to, even if he had just tied Trump, it could have been game-changing for this race. But he's so far behind. As you said, New Hampshire is almost no chance. I think apart from some strange miracle, DeSantis is going to have a hard time. I guess what he does have going for him is Vivek Ramaswamy dropped out, the uh, businessman. He dropped out right after the Iowa caucuses showed that he had received about 7 or 8% support and he endorsed Donald Trump. Now, you know, we've talked a lot and we don't have to belabor it about um, Trump's nearly 100 criminal charges across several indictments in multiple states and he has court hearings. If any of those somehow ended up disqualifying him from office, it could be really important that DeSantis stuck around and picked up these delegates, even if they were just partial, because it might be a choice between Haley, who's seen as a more centrist establishment um, Republican, and DeSantis, who is seen as potentially the heir of the America First platform. And so that seems maybe the only path for DeSantis at this point is if Trump is somehow derailed and, oh, look, who's there with some of the delegates. And if Trump could hand his delegates over to DeSantis, maybe for the promise of pardoning him. But these are pretty um, crazy theoreticals at this point, Dan. And and it's not good for the DeSantis camp that we have to go to these links to find a path for him to take the White House. Right. All good points, Casey. You will be covering the New Hampshire primaries Tuesday night. Listeners can watch your coverage and all of our staffs at the Center Square's coverage at the Center Square.com. But we are out of time. Thanks to our team here in D.C. for that update. As the primary season begins, voters are split on whether they think former President Trump should even be on the ballot. Eliana Kernodal, Assistant General Manager of America's Talking Network, she's here to tell us more. Joining me today is Derek Draplin, one of our regional editors out of Colorado. Welcome, Derek. Hey, thanks for having me on, Eliana. Thanks for joining us. So our story today is pretty relevant to you out in Colorado, uh, something you've been kind of covering for a while now. It relates to whether or not to have former President Trump on the ballot. We're going to be talking about a poll that the Center Square did. But before we get into that, can you just give us some background on this question, especially how it's played out in Colorado? Yeah, definitely. So this is going to be a big case. It's been in the news here in Colorado and nationally. Um, And it stems from a lawsuit in Colorado where a group of voters uh, sued over the question was whether former President Donald Trump should appear on the Republican primary ballot for which would be in March 2024. Um, And that worked its way through the Colorado courts and finally got to the Colorado Supreme Court, which ruled in December that Trump should not he's not eligible uh, to appear on that primary ballot. And they cited the 14th Amendment and Trump's role in the January 6th, 2021 uh, Capitol riots. However, there was a 
a stipulation in that Colorado Supreme Court ruling. When the case was appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, it automatically would place him on the on the ballot just because of the way the timing goes with um, when those ballots need to be certified and get out. So he was, his name is on the certified ballot, which was certified by the Secretary of State on January 5th. Um, and the only way he's removed is if the U.S. Supreme Court deems him ineligible. So that case it, uh, was accepted. I want to, uh, in early January, the U.S. Supreme Court said that they would hear that. Um, and they are, next sometime next month, they are going to be hearing arguments in that case. So that ties well into the poll that uh, the Center Square did and we reported on over the weekend. Yeah. So let's let's get into this poll a little bit. The Center Square's voter voice poll, they surveyed voters and asked them about this question of whether or not Trump should be on the 2024 ballot. And what did voters have to say about this? Yeah. So Real quick, a little background on the poll. It's it's with uh, we've got a partnership with Noble Predictive Insights, um, and this question that we'll talk about is part of a broader poll. But they surveyed over twenty five hundred, almost twenty six hundred uh, likely voters uh, from January second to fourth. And of those results, the question at hand is um, voter opinion of what of Trump's uh, removal from ballot. Really, the stem of this question: Colorado is the first. Supreme Court to uh, kick him off the ballot. And after that, the main secretary of state tried to kick him off the ballot. So it it really stems back to that Colorado case. Let me pull up the numbers here. This poll found that 41% of likely voters in the poll um, found that Trump should be removed from the ballot due to his actions on January 6th. And 40% said that Trump should not be removed. Now, the interesting number here is... um, there's 15% who said Trump should be removed only if he's convicted in a trial related to January 6th. Um, that hasn't happened. Obviously, um, President Trump's been impeached twice, but uh, and the the one impeachment having to do with January 6th, um, the Senate, you know, they didn't. The Senate did not convict him. So there's 15% that you know will sway only if he's he's convicted. So. That's what that number found. Um, we also have breakdowns, which we can talk about in a second, based on political party. But it's it's just an overall interesting look uh, nationally, and this poll is national, not just in Colorado. So then, yeah, let's get into kind of the party affiliation here. I mean, I'm sure most people probably aren't surprised that there's there's definitely something of a split here between. Democrats and Republicans. So what do those numbers look like when you when you consider people's party affiliation? Yeah, it's definitely split along party affiliation. So no surprise that 71% of Democrats think Trump should be removed. Uh, 71% of Republicans think Trump should not be removed. Um, the interesting numbers are, again, that middle question, whether Trump should be removed only, only if he's convicted in a trial. 13% of Republicans agreed with that. 15% of Democrats agreed with that, and 18% of independents uh, agreed with that. Um, and when we're talking independents, independents, 34% thought Trump should be removed, so they agreed with that. That was the biggest question that independents agreed with. Um, and then as far as Trump not being removed from ballot, 27% of independents agreed with that viewpoint. Uh, and then also there is a major number, 22% of independents were not sure. So when we split it down by party, there was very little 
among Democrats and Republicans, very little agreed with the view that they're not sure what should happen. Both both parties, six uh, percent said they're not sure for Republicans and six percent for Democrats. So then, it seems like a a key takeaway from this is there's at least a general kind of trust in the judicial and democratic process to decide this question. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, you know, the, there's there's a lot of nuance, and that that more nuanced question is if he's if he's convicted. So the fact that 15 percent, you know, think that that is a significant number. And yeah, that's how the breakdown looks. There's overall, the overall question, 5%, we're not sure. So that's not as significant. But yeah, I would say there's a lot of, there's all eyes are on this question in the judicial system right now. Well, it's, it's a very interesting story and I'm sure we'll continue to cover it as it develops. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Eliana and Derek for that update. Other polling has shown one of the biggest concerns for voters this year is immigration. Many sanctuary cities such as New York, Denver, and Chicago have felt the impact of the migrant crisis, but it's not only the cities that are affected. In Illinois, other parts of the state have felt the impacts, and some lawmakers are hoping to make changes. Let's go back to Dan McCaleb for more on that story. Joining me again today is Greg Bishop, the Center Square's Illinois Capitol Bureau senior reporter and editor. Granny Illinois General Assembly returned to session this week. And well, not a whole lot got done legislatively. It does seem uh, like the ongoing migrant crisis is front and center on a lot of lawmakers' minds. House Democrats are forming a working group to address the crisis, but will be meeting behind closed doors outside of the scrutiny of taxpayers who've already paid more than $500 million on housing, food, health costs, and health care, excuse me, and other costs uh, for the new arrivals. Republicans who aren't included in that working group say any discussions should be open to the public since the crisis is impacting neighborhoods across the state and taxpayers are picking up the costs. And in in a news conference on the first day of session, Republicans also held their own news conference where they introduced a package of bills to address those mounting taxpayer costs. Where do you want to start, Greg? Yeah, I think uh, obviously we have to start with the ongoing disaster proclamation uh, that the governor has in place, 18 in a row, just dealing with the migrant issue. Uh, And uh, the most recent numbers are uh, around 35,000 non-citizen migrants have come to Illinois since August of 2022. Uh, So those numbers have just been increasing week after week. Uh, And then the reaction, of course, the humanitarian concerns there are. But as you said, It's the taxpayer cost as well that continues to balloon. Uh, So uh, there's discussions that are uh, being had, but not much out in the open. Uh, As you mentioned, uh, there's a new House Democrats working group called the New Arrivals Working Group. And that was announced on Wednesday this week. And it's got only Democrats in it. And uh, working groups are a regular thing at the state house. Where, you know, even Republicans have their own working groups, but they're typically partisan working groups where they have either private meetings in a, in a committee room or they just have private phone calls and they hash out details about whatever the subject may be. This one being created to look at the the migrant issue. And in particular, House Speaker Emanuel Chris Welch said that the migrant issue poses an opportunity uh, to address this and also to build the consensus. Now, one of the things that, uh, you know, the Republicans are concerned about is, of course, what would that consensus look like? Democrats have the supermajority at the Illinois State House. 
But Republicans are saying they're not they're not getting the full picture here. Uh, we have hundreds of millions of tax dollars being spent on migrant care for everything from housing to health care to food, transportation, uh, legal services for those seeking asylum, being able to get paperwork lined up to uh, apply for a work permit. Uh, these are all, of course, things that are costing the Illinois taxpayer. But since we're in that disaster proclamation, it gives the administration of Governor J.B. Pritzker the ability to spend money without the checks and balances that would typically be there if it's not a disaster. We saw very similar types of operations during the COVID emergency. You know, one uh, instance that uh, some Republicans have pointed out was during COVID. You had uh, the McCormick Place uh, transferred, uh, tran- uh, transformed into a uh, emergency hospital. And that costs tens of millions of dollars. Uh, so, you know, th- that type of spending, not many checks and balances on it. So what Republicans are demanding is a couple of things. Number one, they want this working group to be done out in the open. Even State Representative Dan Calkins, who recently traveled to the southern U.S. border and also recently traveled with other House Republicans to Chicago to see some of these migrant centers, which, by the way, they were denied access to uh, once they uh, let you know the organizers know that they were state representatives wanting to see the inner workings of what's going on. Uh, Calkins suggested they have open hearings in Chicago even at one of these places, to hear from residents that are being directly affected by this. Uh, He said that they also met with residents in Chicago who shared their frustrations that they feel like they're being overlooked when it comes to resource and uh, how the resources are being uh, uh, divvied out. So uh, that's that's first and foremost. They want these hearings public. Uh, They also want uh, line by line spending of how the hundreds of millions of dollars are being spent. But another thing, Dan, that Republicans are also adamant on is for the state to end its sanctuary state status. And this derives from the Trust Act, which Governor J.B. Pritzker enhanced when he first came into office. And what the Trust Act says is. Local and state law enforcement cannot work with Immigration Customs Enforcement on immigration detainment orders if that's the only thing against somebody. And something else, too, Dan, this kind of gets into the weeds a bit about definitions. But uh, Governor Pritzker has said time and again that the sanctuary status doesn't deal with this new round of migrants coming in, the 35,000 migrants that are coming in. He says that they are not undocumented, that they're not illegal. He says that they are here legally as asylum seekers. Uh, But Republicans counter that uh, with statistics that are out there uh, showing that the rate of actual asylum being granted to individuals seeking asylum in the United States is extremely low. Uh, So those are some of the major issues that Republicans are pointing out. Uh, Democrats saying they're trying to build consensus uh, around this issue. But uh, one thing that's obviously going to come to a head is a lack of resources that the state has. Uh, So clearly they've got a lot on their plate and uh, it's going to be an interesting session. We'll be covering it all from gavel to gavel and beyond at thecentersquare.com. Thank you to Dan and Greg for that update. That will do it for the first half of the Center Square Radio Hour. After the break, we will look at more top stories from across the nation. Why are some Ohio lawmakers suggesting the state pay students to attend school? How do teachers feel about fellow teachers carrying firearms? And what's the latest consumer price index mean? All that and more when we return 
the Center Square Radio Hour. Welcome back to the Center Square Radio Hour. I'm Chris Krug. Here are this week's quick hits, some of the stories that you may have missed at centersquare.com. In New Mexico, Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham revealed her so-called public safety legislative agenda this week, which included many gun control measures. Lujan Grisham said, quote, This is, without a doubt, the largest and most comprehensive public safety package in our state's history. Gun violence is a significant contributor to the cycles of crime in our communities and will continue to use every tool at our disposal to end this epidemic, end quote. In New York City, Mayor Eric Adams has raked in hundreds of thousands of dollars for a legal defense fund amid an ongoing federal probe into his campaign's financial dealings. The mayor created Eric Adams Legal Defense Trust in November as a response to federal investigation looking into whether the Democrats' campaign conspired to avoid finance rules by funneling donations from the Turkish government. In Arizona, border security became a crucial point of discussion at the Arizona Legislature's Joint Committee on Appropriations hearing on Tuesday morning as the Katie Hobbs administration presented their budget proposals for the upcoming year. The governor is seeking an ongoing $1 million in funding for Operation Secure, which has to do with border security, and $15 million in a mix of ongoing and one-time funding for the SAFE initiative, which is intended to aid in the fighting of the fentanyl epidemic. In Washington, D.C., the U.S. Supreme Court announced it would hear a landmark challenge to an earlier ruling preventing enforcement of anti-camping ordinances, a challenge that was supported by a broad coalition of Republican Democrat leaders, including California Democrat Governor Gavin Newsom. You can find more on these stories and others like them from across the country at thecentersquare.com. We'll be right back with more in-depth news on the Center Square Radio Hour. Are you tired of news that puts politics over people? At the nonprofit Franklin News Foundation, we believe in putting people over politics by delivering nonpartisan news and audio content that serves you, the American taxpayer. With Franklin News Foundation, you can read fact-based, state-focused news for free at thecentersquare.com. You can listen to civil, balanced conversations between policy experts through our podcast network at americastalking.com. Or you can get in-depth news on K-12 education spending, curriculum, and school safety at chalkboardnews.com. It's all free through Franklin, where we put you, the American taxpayer, first in every story, episode, and conversation. And it's only possible through our supporters. Together, we can produce content that puts people over politics and brings Americans the news they deserve. Become a supporter today at franklinnews.org donate. Once again, that's franklinnews.org slash donate. Welcome back to the Center Square Radio Hour. I'm Chris Krug. Two Ohio lawmakers have proposed a plan to combat chronic absenteeism in school, paying students to attend and graduate. Let's go back to Eliana Kernodal for more on this story. Joining me today is J.D. Davidson, a regional editor for the Center Square. How are you, JD? Uh, cold. Yeah, I think like everybody else in the country. Uh, although we're expecting more snow tonight and tomorrow in Ohio, so it's going to be a rough couple of days. 
Uh, yeah, it's just that time of year, I guess. It is winter. Our story today um, is out of Ohio, so your home state. And we're talking about chronic absenteeism, which has been a problem for a while, especially since the COVID-19 pandemic. Can you tell us a little bit more about what's what's the scope of this problem? Yeah. So apparently since COVID-19, when students kind of got used to having their own schedule, working from home like everybody else did, some education leaders, some lawmakers and and possibly parents or, or whomever have come to the conclusion that it students are still struggling to kind of get back into that everyday going to school feel. So then let's get more into this story specifically. Some lawmakers in Ohio are wanting to address this problem of chronic absenteeism. Who are they and what are they proposing? Ironically, it is a bipartisan piece of legislation that was introduced earlier this week. A Republican uh, Bill Seitz out of Cincinnati and a Democrat, Danny Isaacson. They're both out of Cincinnati. So their plan is to see if the state paid students to attend class, if that would eliminate an absentee issue. It's interesting. I, I have read a couple of studies that have been done in the last decade or so that have talked about incentivizing students to attend class. It, it seems both of those studies were non-committal on whether they worked or not. The more I think about it, I, I don't think it's a lot different than the way I grew up 50 years ago or People before that, we tend to try to incentivize our students to do well in school, to do their chores. So this is a step. I know I got money for A's on my report card. To me, this is a little more shocking to actually pay students to go to school. So the idea is to start a pilot program using $1.5 million of taxpayer funds. And there's two parts. One would pay students... To go, to go to school. Uh, the other would pay students to graduate. When you graduate from high school, you'd get $250 if your grade point average is 3.0. Uh, the higher grade point average, the more money you would get. If you're a kindergartner and you go to school every day, you get $50 a month. Uh, and that goes up each grade up through ninth grade. Kindergartners, the money would go in their name to their parents uh, high school students and older students, the money would go to them and their parents. So the idea is to pick four schools in the state, two urban schools, two rural schools, two of them to do the pay for attendance and two of them to do the money for graduation. And that would spend $1.5 million in taxpayer funds to establish the private program it seems like that would cover possibly a year's worth. Beyond that, I think things that we're going to look to follow up on is one, when testimony comes out, we, you know, who's, who supports it, who's against it? Do we really think that it'll make a difference? The other thing is, okay, let's say it works in these four schools. What's it going to cost to expand it to every school district? in every school in the state. 
Yeah. And then if you can't expand it to every school, then is there going to be a, a good way to decide which schools it would apply to and which ones it wouldn't? And would it even be feasible to expand to more than just four? Yeah. In the, the last few years, as COVID money, federal COVID money kept rolling in and rolling in and rolling in, and most states are dealing with surpluses after surpluses after surpluses, the idea is that's great, but that money goes away and is going away quickly. So, you know, if you want to spend a billion dollars to do this this year, you might be able to come up with the money. But three years from now, you're either going to have to raise taxes or stop the program. I really don't have any thoughts on where this may go during this session. And they have till the end of the year to pass something like this. But I, but I will be interested as as the session goes on and it will probably see more movement late spring, late summer. And we'll take a break for the election and then possibly get moved. Uh, the Ohio legislature is infamous for rolling through a lot of stuff in the last two weeks of December before the session ends. So it could be something that, that shows up then. Okay, well, I'm sure we'll keep our eye on it. Thank you for your insights on this story. Thank you, Eliana and JD, for that update. Another area where lawmakers are looking for creative solutions is in protecting schools. One policy some states have adopted is allowing select teachers to carry a firearm at school. But teachers are divided on whether this would make them feel more or less safe. Dan McCaleb is back to tell us more. Joining me today is Brendan Clary, editor of Chalkboard's K-12 website. Brendan, how are you? Doing well. Glad we got some sun today. How about you, Dan? Sun, you know, I'm looking out my window right now. We do have the sun shining, but it's still minus five degrees. Yeah. Brendan, we're recording this on a Tuesday, January 16th. The issue of whether teachers should be armed in schools, and by armed, I, of course, mean what that generally means, carry guns in schools, has come up. The Chalkboard News wrote about that topic based off an Ohio school that allows teachers to carry guns. Of course, gun violence at schools has been a major concern and story, sadly, for many, many years now. And this topic comes up from time to time. Tell us about the story we wrote at Chalkboard News and, and what our reporting found. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that, you know, the response to that is, you know, what kinds of solutions you know, should schools take to try to prevent gun violence? You know, one of them is, you know, do we arm teachers? So in case of an emergency, like a, a situation like that, where there is somebody trying to come into a school to do harm, then you have, you know, teachers who can stand in. So I think that that is, you know, a question that schools are, are thinking about and, and have debated. And uh, Julian Roberts Gamela, he uh, writes for Chalkboard and he wrote this this piece and, and essentially 28 states allow schools to arm certain teachers or staff beyond just, you know, the school resource officers or the school safety guards. So these are, you know, teachers, like your history teacher. And you don't know, usually that's that's part of the key to this is that you're not sure what are armed because then if, if a student or somebody was to enter the school, you wouldn't have like a, a list of, you know, here's who is armed. So 28 states, which, you know, that was news to me. I wasn't sure how many states allowed that. If, you, if you'd ask me, yeah, that's a, that comes as a surprise to me, Brendan. If you had asked me how many states allow their teachers to carry firearms into schools, and I said, well, Texas probably. Texas known for its, its guns, but I don't know if I would have come up with many more states 
other than that, the one we specifically wrote about was in Ohio. Well, so yeah, and so with that Ohio, the, for example, like the New Richmond Exempted Village School District, which again, is like, that's a big, big mouthful, but that that a school there outside of Cincinnati, they, they are allowing their teachers to carry firearms. And so there was a, a sign that kind of got some, some media attention there that said, please be aware that the staff may be armed and will use whatever force is necessary to protect our students and staff. So again, it's sort of laying out for people that this is a deterrent, you know, there are our teachers here who will be armed. And there's actually a number of different school districts in Ohio that, you know, get approval from the state to have teachers who carry weapons. So that that is sort of the impetus behind that, that there was a law that was passed in Ohio pretty recently, I think, that allowed s- schools to to do that. And so that's what that brought up, though, is how how do teachers feel about it? Uh, and so that that's sort of interesting angle that that Julian covered is, you know, what is the gap between, you know, what a community says about this policy to allow teachers to carry weapons and what do teachers themselves say about that? And actually, a surprisingly high number of teachers support the measure. Not just teachers, though, members of the community, too. I was surprised by that, too. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, no, no, you're good. So with that that new Richmond exempted village school district outside of Cincinnati, you know, 70% of the community was in favor of this policy. Wow. And about 44% of the staff supported the measure to have teachers be armed. And 42% did not, right? And so I think that, you know, and Julian talked to Heather Schwartz, who uh, works for the RAND Corporation, and they they do a lot of research on, on education and a lot of other different kinds of policy issues. She said, uh, you know, it, she was surprised. She said, you know, half of teachers are, are in the neutral or pro category about should teachers be able to carry weapons. So about about half of them in there. And so I think that, you know, she said uh, that she was surprised that teachers were as split as they were on the topic of whether teachers should be able to carry weapons and if that makes them more or less safe. So she was expecting large portions of teachers to think that these would make schools less safe, right? And I think that that is sometimes the idea there. Maybe you might have like an idea of like teachers as sort of belonging to like a political group or, you know, something like that. But I think that there is maybe a question here. Of maybe teachers are asking like, okay, what are the policies that, that do help me feel safe? Uh, and, and I think that, that that sort of data, and I'm happy to try to get into that a little bit more, but some of that data, you know, does come with some of those surprises there, Dan. Well, and, and I'm, I'm curious, and then the study uh, or the data coming from the the study might may not show this, but I, is there a like is there a blue state red state divide here? Are like teachers in you know mostly conservative Republican states where gun rights often is you know they're defended much more strongly in those states compared to blue states where you know more gun restrictions are put into place. Was there any a divide there, or is that yeah, something that you just I, see? I'm not. I haven't seen that. I'm not sure if that that does exist. It might, but what I, what I do know is that 54 percent of the nationally representative sample of teachers reported believing that teachers carrying firearms will make schools less safe. So that is sort of like, you know, there is more than a majority saying that, hey, we will not feel as safe if they, if they do. But 20% said that it will make schools safer and 26% said that it would neither make schools more or less safe. So they were pretty apathetic. So to, as to your question, I'm not exactly sure, but there are other things that were, um, other breakdowns that were, you know, maybe interesting, like uh, white teachers were more likely than black teachers to feel that teachers carrying firearms would make schools safer. 
And male teachers in rural schools were most likely to say that they would personally carry a firearm at school if allowed. So that might kind of answer your question a little bit, like if you have a rural school district, but it might be, you know, maybe you have a, a blue state and then you're in a rural part. And so then maybe there's more of that community focus on. Uh, and, and I think that you might see that divide more generally, too, in terms of how do people view weapons. And if you're in a rural school district, you know, where maybe like just more common usage. Yeah, more common. Yeah. And, you know, like, you know, you have a day off, an excused absence for going uh, out for the first day of deer hunting season. Right. As, com- as compared to some more suburban or urban school districts, you know, that might be different. So the stats that I'm pulling from are directly from that research from Rand. So I just wanted to be clear about that, too. Yeah. With, with some of those later comments, it, it does make more sense now a little bit. But still- Still, overall, I'm still generally surprised. I would thought you know, teachers are professionals. They go to school to, you know, learn how to educate students, our, our children, your children. They don't go to school to, you know, learn how to be a police officer, for example, uh, et cetera. But it's interesting data. And I guess, you know, it goes to show the mindset of teachers nowadays with all of these school shootings that we've seen over the, you know, it's now two decades, really. Sadly. Yeah, yeah, I'll give you a final word. Then we got to wrap up. Well, I just think, you know, that there are still more teachers who, you know, are, are possibly opposed to this or they say, you know, that this would make schools feel less safe and that, you know, they might prefer other physical security measures like, you know, uh, cameras or, uh, you know, blocks or different kinds of things instead of weapons. But it is interesting, you know, that there is, you know, some of those teachers who are saying I would carry a gun and I feel safer if, if people, my peers did. So it's just uh, it's kind of an interesting question of what, how do teachers think about this? Fascinating discussion, Brennan, but that's all the time we have. Listeners can keep up with this story and all stories related to K-12 education at chalkboardnews.com. Thank you, Dan and Brennan, for that update. Moving from education to economics, new consumer price index data was released last week. Join me, as always, to dig into the details as Ph.D. economist, Dr. Orfei Debungi. Dr. O. How goes it, sir? Hey, I'm okay. How are you? I'm doing well. A couple of pieces of data that are worth talking about. I'd like to talk about consumer price index. You know, that number came out on the 11th. The consumer price index increased three-tenths of a percent in December from 0.1% month on month in November, right? So you see this uptake. That's where I'd like to drill down. So, so can we can we talk about that and what that means? Well, I think when people see these numbers and the percentages are relatively low, that it's like, well, does that mean anything? It does. Yeah, it does. It it does. Of course. I mean, you think about it: the zero point three percent per month, right? Imagine if inflation were to continue like that for the rest of the year, then we'd be way above the Fed's two percent target, right? So. Uh, so you got to think about annualizing these monthly these monthly changes, and so yeah, so headline CPI consumer price index actually increased uh, more than expected, and so you see this acceleration in uh, acceleration in price growth uh, in December. Again, I think on this podcast we had basically uh, already kind of uh, you know predicted this would happen. You know, I remember back in October, back in November, I said, look, financial conditions are easing so much. They've eased so, so much. You start to see interest rates decline a lot. And that gives the consumer a little bit of breathing room. Now, core CPI was stuck at 0.3% December, same, the same increase as in November. So consumers maybe are not out there as much more than they were in November. In fact, when you look at the current 
economic current activity indicator published by Goldman Sachs that shows basically that uh, December was slightly less hot than November, right? There was still an increase, but slightly less of an increase than November. And so activity is continuing to slow, but you got commodity price shocks. In fact, the harder than expected CPI came from a big jump in energy prices in December, right? The energy index rose 0.4% in December after decreasing 2.3% in November. And so uh, the electricity index increased 1.3% over a month. So huge increase in energy prices in December had a lot to do with that. What about the what about the shelter costs? I mean, I'm just, yeah. if you pull this part, if you pull this report apart, and I'm I'm reading directly from Jeff Cox's story at CNBC. He's got a paragraph in here that says much of the increase came due to rising shelter costs. The category rose 0.5 percent for the month, and accounted for more than half of the core CPI increase. And on an annual basis, he wrote. Shelter costs increased 6.2% or about two-thirds of the rise of inflation. Now, there's much that, unfortunately, the public doesn't know about uh, shelter costs, and that is the fact that the shelter cost in CPI, you know, at least the rent components of shelter in CPI, are basically uh, survey, right? And so they reflect, what do they reflect? They reflect, they come in lacked. In other words, when people move, First, people move every year or so. And so when people move every year or so, you know, if you take a survey, you're only capturing not all of the movers uh, that moved. And so if rents have come down a ton, right, uh, you're not capturing uh, some of these movers that are now facing much lower rents. So, you know, rent market rents have actually cooled significantly from their peak back in February of 2022, and they're down, down to around four, the 4% mark for single family rents, and even further down on a year over year basis for apartment rents. And so, of course, the owner's equivalent rent or rent of private residence in the CPI is not going to pick this up for a while, right? It shows up usually with 12 to 18 month lag. And so, so we're going to continue to see, even though it's still up in the CPI, people on the streets are not facing renters mm-hmm. are not facing these higher rents. And so, if you if you account for the fact that uh, you know rent growth has slowed so much, and that renters are not facing the types of rent the type of rent growth that they were facing before, then the CPI would have come in at about one point nine percent. All right, so much lower than uh, what than the figure that's out there right now and also lower than than you know the where the Federal Reserve Bank actually wants inflation to be. And so you replace that with actual rents and you realize that the economy actually has cooled significantly and a price growth has slowed down a lot. And basically that it's going to show up eventually in the CPI numbers. It just hasn't yet. Now, of course, there are concerns. There are concerns that maybe market rents could be picking up again, right? In a in a month of December, uh, rent growth in November continued to slow. In the month of December, rent growth picked up a little bit. Market rent growth picked up a little bit on a year over year basis. Picked up. I shouldn't really say picked up. I think it it pretty pretty much kind of like stopped slowing, right? It just stabilized 
right? Okay. So Brent growth has really stabilized. Uh, it's not coming down all that much anymore. And so the big question is, you know, will we see, you know, I don't know, first of all, how long will we see, will it take for CPI to catch up? And the second thing is, could we be seeing an uptick in activity and rents in the new year? Appreciate your thoughts as always. That will do it for another week of the Center Square Radio Hour. The Center Square Radio Hour is a production of America's Talking Network produced by Eliana Cronodal. If you missed some of today's show, you can find it at americastalking.com. I'm Chris Krug, and on behalf of everyone at the Franklin News Foundation, thank you for listening to the Center Square Radio Hour.